La Ruiz Productions presents The Great Unlearning, a courageous memoir about one woman's bold journey to mend her broken past. Read for you today by me, the author, Mary Law. In the last episode, I read a story titled Me Too where I addressed the all-too-familiar topic of sexual harassment and assault, but in my case, while riding a bike down a busy stretch of highway in Honolulu while training for my first triathlon. In today's episode, I will read the next story in the book, titled Murmuration. With a goal of becoming a doctor and more credits than needed to graduate from the University of Hawaii with an undergraduate degree in biomedical sciences, when the opportunity to shadow doctors for two weeks at the Queen's Medical Center in Honolulu came up, I jumped at the chance. My first day included a grueling and unprecedented morning in the emergency room where I witnessed the horrible physical and emotional pain of a 50-year-old woman who had been beaten by her husband with a baseball bat. Standing stunned and paralyzed in the doorway of the trauma room, seeing how her enormous physical and emotional distress was causing this badly injured woman to want to die, I felt her pain deep in my gut even though I had never been physically harmed like that. The ER doctor looked at me with surprising composure as he silently pointed to the spot where I was to stand and observe. Unable to focus on anything but a black scuff mark on the wall next to me, I couldn't exhale and knew if I made eye contact with the tortured woman, I would lose all self-control, perhaps even soiling my pants. Grateful to be called out of the trauma room to watch a nurse treating a homeless person with tooth pain who seemed to be experiencing moderate discomfort, my heart sank for this man, who was being accused of drug-seeking and thus treated very poorly. An hour later, a commotion in the ER staff preceded the presentation of a teenage boy who had been hit by a car, then pronounced dead on arrival. When his mother arrived, she collapsed on the floor and thrashed around while wailing inconsolably, and I realized I had never witnessed a grief which penetrated my very being like this woman's did. Not prepared to bear witness to such intense expressions of suffering, I felt overwhelmingly helpless and hyperventilated as the room began to spin. Without any coping tools or defenses available, I absorbed every inch of their pain until my bones ached. Feeling changed forever, I grieved for something I couldn't name. When the ER doctor said I looked a little pale and asked if I was okay, 
I stared at him blankly before hurrying to the next trash can to vomit. Seeing the suffering of others felt like too much to handle, and I realized I couldn't stand to be in that environment for another minute. I calmly and politely excused myself and then ran to my car where I cried hysterically in the parking lot. Even though I never went back, that experience was just what was needed to save my own life. In a few years, I would learn why I had reacted that way I did in the ER. I hadn't recognized or embraced my own suffering. So how could I compassionately embrace anyone else's? My own trauma was rotting somewhere in my gut, and having never allowed myself to feel it, I was deeply triggered in the presence of great pain and suffering. Quickly changing my biomedical science major to exercise science, I went on to become an athletic trainer. Helping motivated athletes recover from their injuries felt safer than medicine. And for a few years, I flew under the radar from any substantial suffering by working for physical therapists as well as with clients of my own as a personal trainer. I eventually returned to school to earn a master's degree in public health, where I happily made great strides in learning how to make a difference in the health and well-being of my community. Then, when it was time to choose a thesis topic, I was put on a life-saving path to personal inquiry, unlearning, and the healing of my childhood wounding. In reflecting about this story, I sure did a great job at compartmentalizing the experience in the emergency room. More accurately, I stuffed my feelings. I didn't speak out loud about it to anyone. I simply stuffed it down into a cement vault with all the other traumatic experiences I endured. Stuffing my emotions gave me a false sense of emotional safety, I suppose, In the moment, it felt easier and safer to do. I thought, if I didn't allow myself to really feel my emotions around witnessing the trauma of others, I wouldn't have to deal with them. But as we all might not know, bottling up emotions can backfire in unexpected ways. I didn't grow up learning that expressing emotions wasn't safe, I grew up learning that you don't talk about what is troubling you. I lacked the emotional intelligence to know what to do with my feelings and didn't trust anyone enough to share anyway. I don't think I even trusted myself. I wanted to learn more about compartmentalizing and stuffing our feelings, so I asked my mental health counselor daughter, Emily, how much of it was skill or was it a form of denial? She said, compartmentalizing is a short-term way of protecting yourself. It's a defense mechanism. It's not necessarily negative. Sometimes it's best to put a conflict aside so you can manage another situation. 
like you might have problems at home and then go to a busy job. It's best to put aside the stress of home so you can deal with the stress of work. Then, deal with what is going on at home soon and in healthy ways to avoid the pain you will experience by putting them off. If you don't deal with a troubling situation in a timely manner, it will fester and bite you later. That's stuffing emotions. Much more about that in another podcast. Here is an analogy that might be helpful. Compartmentalizing is like purchasing something with a credit card and then paying off the balance before it starts accruing interest. Stuffing your emotions is like not paying the purchase off in time or late and it becomes more expensive because of interest and late fees. It's a pay now or pay more later situation. The choice is always ours to make. If you'd like to see the self-portrait I created to accompany the story I read today, you'll find it on my blog at mary-law.com. Or better yet, while you are on my website, buy a copy of The Great Unlearning There are over 50 surreal self-portraits and stories in there. If you purchase a book via my website, I will send you an autographed copy while they last, or you can buy it on Amazon. Now it's time to address a reader's question. Lori, a listener from Oregon, bluntly asks, What are you afraid of? Whoa, what a bold question, Lori but not one I am afraid of. I held this question close for an entire day and came up with a significant fear and questioned it deeply. I know that fear is a signal that something isn't right or out of alignment. I've learned that fear can teach me about myself. In this way, I can make fear productive. Fear isn't sustainable. If I'm afraid or worried all the time, I can't be objective. This is outlined in my book repeatedly. When I was embracing this question, the first thing that came to mind, and the safest thing to share in the moment, so I thought, was my irrational fear of the dentist. I've joked with people that I must have been tortured in a dentist chair in a past life, and I see the dentist as a threat. My blood pressure skyrockets when I'm seated in that faux leather reclining chair, waiting for my portly dentist to peer over my right shoulder, just out of view enough so I have to crank my upper body to see him. But really, why do I fear the dentist? Because I feel claustrophobic in that chair. Why do I feel claustrophobic? Because I feel trapped and become anxious. Why do I feel trapped? Because people are hovering over me and causing me discomfort. What's wrong with people hovering over me? I feel pinned and unable to escape while someone is inflicting pain on me. I feel like I don't have any control in the situation. I just have to lay there and accept the discomfort and then pay money for it before leaving the building. I went on and on with this type of questioning 
And I ended up at the root of how I felt when I was raped more than once when I was 16 and 17. I felt pinned without control and it was quite painful physically and emotionally. So what do I do with this clarity? I can embrace it and talk about it or I can stuff it down to that cement vault until it aches so bad I have no choice but to address it. So what's out of alignment in me that makes me fear the dentist? Even though I have done significant work on the violations to my body as a teenager, there is still more work to be done. Thank you, Lori. This exercise proved to be quite revealing and oh, so empowering. If you have a question or comment about a story or my art, please email me at mary at mary-law.com. M-A-R-Y-L-A. There's a good chance I'll mention your comment or address your question in a future podcast. My website and email address are also in the show notes. I have a free gift for you. By signing up for my newsletter with inspiring new content, information on upcoming events and future projects, you will receive the audio version of my book of poetry, Fear Means Go, read by me. I also play classical guitar on this recording as I did for today's podcast. In the next episode, I will read the last story of part one of my book titled The Myth of Me. It's about when it came time to pick a thesis topic in graduate school, I decided to do research on myself because I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia and a panic and anxiety disorder. I wanted to understand the origins of my physical and emotional pain and sought the counsel of a wide variety of practitioners. From Western to Eastern medicine, shamanic to celestial guidance, and a few otherworldly interventionalists. You'll learn about the treatments I endured, the new perspectives I gleaned, and how my life was changed forever. This is Mary Law. Thanks for listening.